Amen. Thank you, Abigail. I'd appreciate that very much. Romans chapter number 12. You join me there. Romans chapter number 12. I was fancying myself to be a bass until that last hymn. I tell you, that was a little difficult if you tried to do that bass part, as Pastor Aaron encouraged us. But uh, uh, nonetheless, good song, good words, good meaning to appreciate it much. Romans chapter 12, Brother John is coming down the, the middle aisle. If you need an outline, I'd encourage you to get his attention. We have several extra, and we'd love for you to be able to follow along and uh, join us there in the outline so you see where we're going and what we're doing. Romans chapter 12, we are ready uh, here in just a moment, verse 11 and following, and and uh, again, glad you are here tonight. Excited about this study. Been a great study already, Romans chapter 12, and looking forward to tonight's installment. And so, hope you will too. You know, as I read the Bible, and I would guess that many of you are like me, but as I read the Bible, I like to think what it would have been like to be at different places and events and experience the different things recorded uh, in that scripture, the different happenings, the different stories to actually leave them. I, I love as I read, and uh, I do believe that my generation and prior generations, don't take offense if you're younger, I think we had a good grip on how to use our imaginations. And uh, uh, long before we could afford guns, we used sticks, amen, and uh, so forth and so on. I mean, we uh, imaginations are good, and I think that's uh, something for us to encourage and young people, use their imaginations, don't leave it all to video games and, uh, or, or technology and things there. But I like to use my imagination. I like to think about the stories, the passage, the happenings. I like to consider what it must have been like, what it looked like, and what it felt like. How it differs from what we even experience today, if I might put it that way. One of the biggest impressions that I come away from, especially when I look at the beginning of Genesis, and as I read about the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were in, and and so forth, I come away with this impression. It was a garden like no other that the world has ever seen nor will ever see. Uh, in its uh, entirety. I mean, just imagine what what it would have been like to walk in the Garden of Eden. Yet, I would not say it's unique in the sense, not its variety of plants and trees, and you can just imagine every variety of fruit and vegetable was probably there, but, uh, and not, uh, obviously it's, it's pretty unique that God was the gardener, right? And uh, long before man came on the scene, it was a beautiful, a wonderful uh, garden that he spoke into existence. I, I get that. And yet, here's the thing that always catches me. Long before Adam and Eve came along, or I should say for when Adam and Eve came along, do you realize that garden was stocked and ready to go? When Adam and Eve opened their eyes, certainly Adam for sure being first, when he opened his eyes and they hey, he looked around, could you imagine the kind of, I mean, fruit they needed to eat, and so God had provided the vegetables and the fruit of that garden to feed them and to nourish them, and, and the fact was this, as, as that was the case, man, as he came to life, looks around and all the fruit is all around him, already there. Now, in time, we understand that Adam was given the task of dressing the garden, working in it, and certainly after sin came along, then, boy, he really had to work out in his own garden and had to leave the, uh, the Garden of Eden. But get this, and don't miss it. I, I think this is neat, and, uh, for, at least for me. I mean, as he looked around, there were vegetables and fruits everywhere, and all he had to do was what? Pluck and eat. I don't know about you, but I'd love to walk into my backyard and have a garden like that. Amen? 
I'd love for somebody else to do the work and the fruit just naturally there and boy, you can just do it. I love finding wild uh, blackberry bushes on our property or whatever the case may be. I love that and, and being able to, that, that just, boy, to not have to work. Uh, I think any of us would enjoy that, would like that reality. But, but what happened to the Garden of Eden? Well, sin entered, right? And as sin entered that Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were forced to leave. So sin opposed that garden. And certainly for them now, they had to work for the fruit. They had to go till the ground. And that was part of the curse that they themselves had to work the ground to produce fruit and vegetables and things like that. And Frank, can I encourage you? Here, here's a reality. Just like that, just how sin came in and ruined everything for that garden. Here, here, here's the truth. You and I, in the garden of our lives, will not produce fruit naturally. It's not just going to happen like that garden of Eden at the beginning. Why? Because sin is present. Though you and I are saved and we've been redeemed and praise the Lord for that, the fact is we still have this old sinful nature. And sin is opposed to fruit, this kind of fruit we're studying in Romans chapter 12, being produced in our lives. It's going to take work. It's certainly with God's help and power and strength, but it's going to be work on our part as we are called to plant and grow fruit. Why? Because just as sin ruined the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, forcing them to leave, so sin opposes us and our striving to produce fruit. If you and I were perfect, producing fruit would come naturally. Easy. We'd be all these things that Romans chapter 12 says. At the instant, at the instant of salvation, well, frankly, if we were perfect, you wouldn't need salvation. But if we were perfect in the sense, the Holy I mean, the fruit would just be there. You'd be the perfect person. And uh, I don't know if you'd want to be married to the perfect person. That would be pretty intimidating, wouldn't it? I mean, that's what you would be, though. Perfect if you just naturally produced all kind of fruit. But we aren't, and it doesn't. We aren't perfect and it doesn't naturally produce. Paul's speaking of fruit here. Understand how does fruit grow? How do vegetables grow? Some of you are getting in your gardens or you've just gotten in your gardens and uh, you're praying there's not another frost here in Michigan. Amen. And uh, you've gotten things planted and you're ready to go. So what does it start with? Well, it starts with a seed, right? May I uh, submit to you that Romans chapter 12 is just seeds? That Paul is saying, hey, listen, they're not to be loved without dissimulation. You, you ought to abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. He's planting seeds in your life and my life. He's putting them and driving them deep within our heart, allowing the Holy Spirit to come along then and water it and say, oh, wow, that, that's, that is fruit I need to produce. That is, that is some of the fruit that I need to allow the Holy Spirit to, to bring about in my life. And then you and I are called to cultivate it, to, to continue water it, to help it to grow, and then eventually with the idea that uh, we certainly keep out the weeds of sin from our heart and our life so that fruit grows. But then the idea is that we bring forth fruit. And how did Jesus Christ put it? Bring forth much fruit. And we keep producing. There's always a planting season and a reaping season. What Paul is telling us here are the fruit that are to be blooming in our garden. And uh, we saw last week that the crucial aspect of this soil is what? Grace. You've got to have grace in your life. You've got to be regulated. And, and, and really the outworking of grace in your life ought to be this reality. It produces a soil that then the Holy Spirit can come and produce and plant seed in our lives. And then through constant watering and cultivating and nourishing that fruit grows. 
that's God's plan, and that's certainly what is um, <laughs> typical or what is presented to us here. That right mixture of soil that has grace and certainly our desire to obey God. Remember, here's the fruit that the Holy Spirit led Paul to encourage us to make sure is in our garden, which is our life. We saw it last week in verse number 10. If you look with me there, verse number 10, notice it. Be kindly, or actually let's back up, verse number 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. So we, we uh, kind of put this all under this main point. Point number one, our exercising grace within the family. It's needed, it's necessary, it won't work without it. We've got to employ grace. Letter A is this, a gracious love for all. Love that is genuine, and that genuine. Uh, that genuine aspect comes from him saying this is without dissimulation. It is without hypocrisy. It is consistent. It is real. It's not fake. It's shed abroad in our hearts to everyone. And it doesn't uh, play particulars or favoritism, if we might put it that way. Letter B, we saw that there was a gracious loyalty to all that is good. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. And those intense words, they were verbs of passion and intensity that you and I ought to have displayed in our lives. So crucial, so so necessary. These are fruit that God wants in your life and mine. He's planted the seed through his word. The Holy Spirit, hopefully this week, has already been working on you to grow these seeds. Now we're going to add a couple more. Let's look at verse number 10. Notice it. He says this, Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. Let her you see it on your outline there. We'll simply call this gracious brotherly love displayed in good will. Now, this is a, a different love. Remember, the word love in verse number nine, or excuse me, yes, verse number nine was agape. Well, this is a different one. In fact, there's a couple nuances to this that I think are quite interesting. Uh, there's something very interesting to the usage of the Greek word here. You see, you look down in that verse, and where it says, be kindly affection. That is one Greek word, kindly affection. And as we have seen before, this is a Greek word that is only used in this context. It's not found anywhere else in the scriptures. And I kind of like those words because it's fun to study them. Maybe where they appear in secular Greek uh, writings and things like that. But you're kind of trying to figure out a good robust definition or understanding of that word. And uh, such as this one. When we read kindly affection, he's literally speaking of this. It is a strong relationship. That's really what he's alluding to. It's interesting about the Greek word. It has a reference to a family connection. Familial, if you want to describe it as such. It's a, a family connection. In fact, it was used in Greek writings to describe the affection between children and parents, and parents and children, and children with each other. Just this, this idea of a family bond, and I, I think that's a good description of it. It's the idea of that family connection, a family relationship, a family bond uh, that is to be in us. As believers within a church, just a connection, a bond, as, as certainly that I would say the Holy Spirit is the glue that holds us together. Now it's reinforced, notice it if you will, it's reinforced with Paul's combining it with the term that's translated uh, as brotherly love. Can you think of the Greek word that that comes from? You know it. It's in Pennsylvania. The city of Brotherly love. Philadelphia, that's literally the Greek word. That's the transliteration of the Greek word is our English word, Philadelphia. We know that to be brotherly love. And so I love it how Paul combines kindly affection, brotherly love with this idea of a family bond. 
uh, just we're close-knit. We're, we're together as a family. That's what he's saying, that we as believers, to, to boil it down, we could describe this fruit, this idea of being kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. We could describe it with three descriptions. The first is this. Notice it on your outline. It involves a cherishing of fellow believers as family members. It's a cherishing. So that's some of that uh, attitude, that, um, that, that sensation, that feeling one to another we ought to have. It's a cherishing one another. And uh, I think that has certainly been true as we've gone through this situation and we've had folks trickle back in and boy, you just cherish one another. It's good to see folks and uh, see them coming back. It's a, it's a family connection that produces a unique cherishing of another person. Um, it's, again, that idea with the children and parents and that connection there. It involves our affections, uh, them being sympathetic and humble one to another here in the church. It's to be employed, this cherishing of one another and our interactions with each other. It is, it is commanded. It's not to be employed in a pick-and-choose thing. Well, I'll show affection to you, but not to you, and so forth and so on. It's a consistent cherishing of one another. That's why he says be kindly affectioned with brotherly love. The second one is this. It, it literally involves, this word tells us, it involves a devotion. A devotion that's displayed to fellow de- uh, believers. A loyal love that speaks of nothing, uh, uh, really nothing else, nor having but one's best interest in mind and consideration. It's a devotion to one another within the church that surpasses what naturally occurs between people with no family connection. So you'd find a stranger on the road and you wouldn't be normally devoted to them and uh, someone you don't know or even maybe somebody you work with and who's not a Christian, there'd be a very low level of devotion. Here it's saying in the Bible that you and I within the church, we ought to have a high level of devotion to one another, much like a family devotion. You know, uh, we've talked about this before and I love Michigan for this fact. It is big on families and family loyalty and, and just remaining loyal to your family and so forth. And that connects that bond and that devotion. Yeah, the reality that, you know what, you know, I can mess with my brother, but the moment you mess with my brother, we're both messing with you. It's that mentality, right? That's the idea here, that devotion to it. And so that's what Paul is saying. And, and he's saying it needs to be present within the church among all believers. Not an option or not optional, but not a suggestion, but necessary if this thing we call church is going to work. A devotion. The world at large knows much about devotion, somebody being devoted to something. If you watch many of our professional athletes, they are devoted uh, to their uh, sport. I mean, it comes out in their life, it's displayed in their actions, and boy, they are devoted. So the world knows about devotion, but our hope and prayer is that the world knows about devotion to God. And devotion to one another as children of God. We said last week, you know, the Bible's very clear. How is the world going to know that we are God's disciples? By our love one for another. And that includes this affection, this cherishing. This includes this devotion one to another. And then I like this statement because I think this is so good too. Obviously, the statement says it. The verse does. Thirdly, it involves the expression of kindness and goodwill to fellow believers kindness and goodwill to fellow believers. 
Now, I, I like that word. He puts the word kindly here, right? Kindly affection. Elsewhere, we know that Paul instructs you and I to be kind one to another, forgiving hurts and offenses in likeness to God's forgiveness of our own sins. Here's where brotherly love comes into play. I, I think of, and I, I know we have pairs of brothers in here and so forth. I, I think of my relationship with my own brother. We, we don't see eye to eye on everything. In fact, there was a time in my childhood that I was an IU fan and my brother was a Purdue fan. If you know anything about Indiana, that's like Michigan State and Michigan. Okay, so you, that, that didn't go well together. There was times we disagreed on things, right? And, uh, yeah, but this is what I always know. We may disagree, and we may not see eye to eye on everything, but here's the reality. With my brother, we always love each other, and we always treat each other with respect and love and kindness. There was a kindness present in our relationship, and still is, as now we're adults and, and uh, grown up. And uh, most of us will give a close brother the benefit of the doubt. We'll show them much grace, uh, show grace toward them. We'll be willing to forgive quickly. And I'll tell you, that fruit is one that is hard to grow, isn't it? If I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to, like how I treat my brother, I'm going to treat every other believer, especially in the local church, I'm going to treat them like that. That's a hard grace to grow. Uh, it's one that's hard to develop and water and see grow within me. It takes a boatload of grace to see this grow in my personal garden as we interact with fellow believers here in the church. The old saying is funny, isn't it? And yet it does give us a good glimpse of reality. I think I've shared it with you before. But to dwell above with saints in love, that will indeed be glory. To dwell below with saints we know, well, that is a different story. Yeah, we need Grace. We need this, this idea of brotherly love in kindly affection one for another. And that's not always easy, but it can't be done. It can be grown in your heart and my heart and come out in our display one to another. If this thing we call church is going to work, it's got to be cultivated. You see in your outline, we, I, I like this statement here, even though I came up with it, okay? We must all cultivate some grace-grown kindness. Showing goodwill to one another as we have opportunity. You think about it. In your family, if you're a mom, and certainly if you're a dad too, you've tried to teach your children kindness. Certainly has come up in your family and among siblings or maybe with someone at church or school or somewhere else that you've tried to encourage them to have grace-grown kindness. What is grace-grown kindness? Well, it's a kindness that erupts from the grace that you have in your heart for someone else and the grace that God has shown you. And you have grace-grown kindness. Here's reality. You taught your children, you know what, they may be unkind to you, but you ought to turn the other cheek and be kind to them. That's biblical, isn't it? So it takes a special kind of grace to say, whoa, wait a minute, someone's unkind to me. I'm still going to show kindness to them. And I, I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to show kindness to them in spite of how they despitefully use me, how they treat me. That is what he is talking about here. This plays into this kindly affectioned with brotherly love. And it's a great picture. I challenge each of us tonight. I think the Holy Spirit challenges us tonight through this passage to show our grace through our kindness. Now, don't miss this. Now, Pastor Henry, why do you say that? Why do you say show our kindness, or excuse me, show our grace through our kindness? You know why? Because God in heaven did exactly that. Look at this verse, and you can certainly look in your Bibles if you like to, at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. But here it is, Ephesians 2, 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. 
Isn't that neat? He says, listen, I'm going to show my grace through kindness. I'm going to demonstrate it. May I just tell you, I think the Holy Spirit's prayer tonight is for you and I and every church, every believer, is that we would show the grace in our lives, certainly the grace that God has given us, but the grace we're supposed to be growing. We're supposed to show that grace through our kindness one to another in action, words, thoughts, giving the benefit of the doubt, cherishing, uh, this devotion, as we've talked about, it ought to come through. I'll tell you, friend, that's, a, uh, that's quite an interesting application and certainly true. I, I think it's good for us to think about. It's good for us to be challenged about asking ourselves this question. If that's God's desire for the exceeding riches of His grace and, and ours personally to be on display in the church family through our kindness, our family devotion, our cherishment of one another, then it begs this question, is it? Is it? Do I have a reputation of cherishing other people, fellow believers? Do I have a reputation of uh, really um, treating them with devotion, being devoted to fellow believers? Do I have a, a reputation of showing kindness? See, uh, although many fruit belong in the garden, and uh, this is what I like, okay? Well, there's many fruit that belong in the garden, and, and there seem to be some fruits and vegetables that go together, I like it how God has described that. Certainly as a, the Holy Spirit is the instigator, the facilitator of those things. The fact is this. There's just some fruit that really goes together. Paul presents that. And I, I can't help thinking. When I think of fruits and vegetables that go together, I, as we get into the summer, boy, all I can think about is cucumbers and tomatoes. I think cucumbers and tomatoes fresh from the garden just go well together. I like a plate that has sliced tomatoes and sliced cucumbers. The cucumbers are in the tomato juice. Mm. Pile on some good old sodium salt. Doctor doesn't go for that. You pile that on, man. That is a feast, and that is a perfect pair. To me, they just go together, and I think I grew up on it. And I think that's why my mom and dad always did tomatoes and cucumbers and green beans and everything else. I didn't care for green beans as much, but <laughs> I think cucumbers and uh, tomatoes go well together. I eat green beans, by the way. Don't say I don't. Okay, I do eat them, but I think they just go well together. That's the same with these, this next fruit. Okay, so he says, as we see it, verse number, and I think they're right, they're in the same verse, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. So you're showing this kindness, this cherishing, this devotion. Well, naturally, what's going to flow from that is our next fruit that he presents here in the rest of verse 10. Notice it. In honor, preferring one another. In honor, preferring one another. Letter D, you see it here. It's, uh, it's the idea of gracious lifting up. That's honoring, lifting up through preference through preference. You see, that devotion and cherishing mingled with an affectionate kindness of the brotherly love we are to demonstrate to one another will lead us easily to display an honoring one another by giving preference one to another. It's been described as this, as we've studied this term before in other passages, so we don't dwell on it too long, but it's the idea of treating someone or others more important than myself, giving them preference. It's interesting, the Greek word literally means lead. In other words, give them the lead. You allow them to lead. Let them have first preference, priority. How do you want to describe that? That's literally what the word means. It's humbly giving them priority and honor. It's the opposite, and this is really what Paul's getting at, self-promotion. It's the opposite of self-preservation. I think the perfect example scripturally is, is David and his good friend Jonathan, isn't it? I mean, if you think of somebody who had kindly affection with brotherly love, and certainly it'd have to go back to verse number 9 and say they had agape love one for another. But here are two men that, that show that. Now, think about that and think about their situation. Here was the heir apparent to the throne who wasn't going to be. 
Here is a shepherd boy, came out of the back 40, uh, the backwoods, and nobody knew him beforehand, and, and all of a sudden he's supposed to take over the, uh, the throne. I'm telling you, that relationship has all the earmarks for a spark and a big bang and for it to be over. And yet it didn't. David and Jonathan became close friends. And what's amazing about that, as they did, both demonstrated great grace. A humble preference to one another. Notice what happened. David didn't push his rights. David waited on God. God's going to work all this out. I'll just wait my time. I'll buy my time. I'll let God do it. We know that because David had a couple opportunities to kill King Saul. He said, I'm not going to force him. I'm not going to do my rights. No, no, no. I'm going to get preference to the king at this point. And, I mean, he showed great grace in that, a humble preference. Then you have Jonathan. My, Jonathan didn't usurp what some would say he had a right to. He, he should have helped his dad kill, kill David. Then he would have been king. He could have done that. He could have gone along right with Saul. But he sat there at the dining room table and told dad, No, dad, David's been nothing but good to you. He showed you nothing but kindness. And you ought to do the same. He, he went under the wrath of his own father in defense of David. I'll tell you, there's someone who prefers someone else in honor. There's a guy who got this, this kindly affection, the brotherly love, and preferring one another. David, God said, you're going to be king. I, I support you in that. I'm going to go with it. And, and yet, Jonathan lost his life right next to his, his father and fighting the enemy. And here's what's neat, and I think this is a great application for our present passage. Later, when all was said and done, and David sat on the throne of Israel, David wanted to show love, kindness, preference to the lineage of Saul, to Jonathan. You remember what he did? He saw it, who was left, and, and there was uh, the, the, the child that most people would be ashamed of. He was dropped on leaving the city and broke his feet and, or his foot and uh, couldn't ever walk correctly. And he was in hiding because they're fearful of what David was going to do and wipe out the entire family. And uh, there was Mephibosheth. And what did David do? You remember? David showed him amazing love, kindness, cherished him. He was devoted to Mephibosheth. He said, Mephibosheth, you'll have a seat at my table for the rest of your life. Take this palace and take these lands. It is all yours. May I tell you what David did? He preferred another in honor. And why did you do it? Did Mephibosheth do something great? No. Did he merit it? No. You know why he did it? He did it for Mephibosheth's father's sake. Now, don't miss the application here that I think comes to play for us. As David did it for Mephibosheth, so we are called to do the same for our father's sake in an obedience to his command. I didn't go easy on you. I'm making you write Mephibosheth. Okay? Just put MEP period, abbreviate it. You know what it is. Okay, but as David did for Mephibosheth, you know what you and I are called to do? Show the same love, kindness, cherishing, devotion to one another for our Father's sake. Because, you know, there's many in the church, and, and I hope you'll take this right when I say things like this, but there are many in the church, myself included, that probably don't deserve you to honor them in this way, to give them love and devotion and preference. But you and I are called to do it for the Father's sake. 
This is a fruit that I'm called to out of obedience to God and the reality that he's made me a new creature. In fact, in humility, I should realize, wow, I don't deserve for someone to treat me like this as a member of the church and to cherish me, to be devoted to me, to show me such kind affection and kindness. I don't deserve that. My friend, none of us do. And yet God has commanded us to show it one to another. And I'll tell you, I'll trust a God who has already showed it to me. Umpteen times over. When I certainly didn't deserve it or merit it, he showed it to me. And so he calls you and I to do the same thing. I'll tell you again, this fruit doesn't grow naturally. You just don't walk into a church and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm just automatically, naturally devoted, and I cherish, and I'm, I'm going to show every kindness. No, it's got to be grown in a soil that is saturated with grace and a determination to obey. There has to be a determined seeding and planting and cultivating on each of our parts. Now, verse 11. See, some of you thought we'd only get through one verse. We're going to go for two. Here we go. Verse number 11. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I like it. Man, three statements that go well together. And we're going to title it under this. Letter E is what this one is. Gracious diligence in service to God gracious diligence and service to God. I like how a couple commentators put this, and so we'll kind of borrow it and use it tonight. They broke it down by each of those statements, and as you see each of those statements, they said, okay, the first one here is an outward look. When it says not slothful in business, it's the idea this outward look is at the business at hand, the subject of this passage. What is the subject of this passage? Well, my role in living within the church, which includes the employment of my God-given gift. So uh, here are these things, all saturated with grace, the soil of grace that I'm supposed to employ and put into practice. He says, listen, don't be slothful in that. Don't be, what does slothful mean? It means lazy, right? We get that. It's, it's lazy, procrastinating, slow. If you think of the animal known as a sloth. Okay, don't, don't be slow. Get, get to work is literally what Paul is saying here. Don't be slothful in business. Now, I like that statement, especially coming off of this past Sunday night. Saying being diligent in our service for God, performing our duty, our role, as Paul says, our business. Exactly what we talked about on Sunday night. We are to do diligently what needs to be done, what we are gifted to do. What we are gifted to do. It's a diligence. It's a ah. I, I'm gifted to do this. And so, man, I, I don't want to be slothful. I don't want to let it just, just kind of sit there and fester and not be used. I, I want to use the gift that God has given me in the place that God has told me within the church. Don't hesitate or hold back. Roll up your sleeves and dig in. Get to work. That's literally what Paul's saying. Be diligent. Don't be slothful in business. The inward look, that's the next one. You see it there where he says, fervent in spirit. This is all about the attitude within. So as we look within, number one, outward is I don't want to be slothful. I want to be diligent in what I do and what God has called me to do, these things. I want to work at planting this garden and getting that seed water and nurturing and helping it to grow. Number two, I'm looking inward to make sure my attitude is correct. The Greek word for fervent, I think we've talked about in other passages before, it literally is the picture of water boiling and coming to the point where it boils over. There's an intensity to this attitude and, and uh, to see something done, to see it not wavering, not, not getting distracted, not allowing it to fall by the wayside or leave something undone. 
When you're teaching your children about work ethic, boy, you have to teach them, just don't start it and leave it. You've got to complete the job. You've got to have a good spirit and attitude during it. In fact, I think this is a good term for it. It's a call to have a spiritual enthusiasm for your role in the church. Be enthusiastic about these things, the garden growing in you, and these graces, if we might call them as such. Uh, this spiritual gift that God has given you, be enthusiastic about using it. Be enthusiastic about producing fruit, serving God, seeing the job through. Now that ta- or takes what we've talked about. It takes resolve. It takes persistence. It takes commitment. It takes a surrender that goes well beyond hobby Christianity. Uh, pseudo uh, committed to it. <laughs> this is a statement Paul says, fervent in spirit says, this is boring. You have your blinders on and you're focused on this business at hand. That's really what he describes here. It goes well beyond good intentions. You see, Paul was the perfect example of this. I did not do it. I should have, but I thought about uh, taking through all of Paul's writings for tonight and just kind of making a note. Every place he said something like, I labor, I work, I run, I push towards the mark. I mean, you read Paul, and boy, you get somebody who's enthusiastic, diligent, fervent in spirit. He's going after it. I like that. Remember that statement? This one thing I do. You know what that tells you? And this guy has a passion, he has an enthusiasm, and he knows what he's doing. He has committed and dedicated his life. He's surrendered and committed. He is not some weekend warrior. I mean, this is just, this is a guy that's going after it day in and day out, seeing the job done. He is not slothful. I don't think Paul could ever be accused of being slothful. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit. That is Paul. He had a fervency for the things of the Lord. It begs the question, do you and I have that? Do I have a fervency to see this, these things employed in my life? This fruit grown so that I can make the church better and I, I can add to what the church is. Do I have a fervency for that? Do you employ that in your interactions and service for God? Last but not least, we have an outward look. We have an inward look in this statement. We also have an upward look. An upward look. It speaks of priority and perspective. Priority and perspective. Literally, the idea that I do what I do for the greatest motive. As a Christian, I do what I do for the greatest motive because God said to do it and I want to please Him as my Lord. You know, I am thankful, and I, I've told you many times, I, we ought not to get over it, but I am thankful that there are positive results and consequences of obeying God and doing what's right. I, I'm grateful that there are good things that happen in my life to you. There's good things that happen in my life when you do what's right, vice versa. There's good things that happen in my life when I do. I, I am grateful for that, but those positive consequences are, ought not be what moves us to do what we do. It ought to be, I'm serving my Lord. He is Lord. He's my master. And so I want to serve him and I want to obey him. And that's literally, if we boil it all down, it's not about the benefit for me or for others or what happens in our lives. We come to a conclusion, we focus simply this, as Paul might say, I am serving the Lord. And two things then factor into that. When I realize he is my Lord and Savior, when I say that I want him to be my master, then two things come into that. Number one, we've seen it before, but I must make sure all I do is consistent with the Word of God. 
Why? Because the word of God is the word of my master. And if I consider myself a servant or a slave to the master, the reality is there's only one person's word that matters. It's his. So I am serving the Lord, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving my master, serving the Lord. That's exactly what he's saying here. And it's a good point. Number two is this. I must continually be devoted to God's glory and service. The pleasure of the master is really all that matters. You take a study on a slave or servant back in olden days, especially the times of the Scripture. Boy, they had one devotion, one focus is the, the, the pleasing of the master. For you and I, it's serving the master. And it's bringing him glory. And some people are like, I, I don't like that picture of that. Well, my friend, can, can I tell you what kind of master we serve? He's the master that's asked us to do things, commands us to do things. And then he brings us and let us eat, lets us eat at his table. He's a master that treats us like we are his children, joint heirs with Christ. He invites us into the family to experience all that the family experiences. My friend, may I tell you, we serve a great master. We serve a great Lord. And Paul is saying, this is your your perspective. Your priority is, I'm serving the Lord, and your perspective is, okay, I'm a bond slave. Now, here's what's interesting. That's exactly the terminology he uses here when he uses the word service. There's several Greek words that can be translated for serving, service. And here he says, it's a bond slave service. I am a slave, a bond slave, a servant to him. Now remember, this is not unique for Paul's writings. Many of his books, he begins with this. In fact, you remember Romans chapter 1 and verse 1? He said, I'm a servant of God, the Lord Jesus. And we studied that word. It is the word doulos, which is a good meaning of slave. Servant slave. That was Paul's perspective. And he's encouraging you and I, don't be slothful in business, putting this fruit into practice, taking your gift and using it. Be fervent in spirit. Have an enthusiasm about what you do to serve God. Be excited about it. Have a passion for it. Be fervent. Uh, Be like that water boiling. Don't boil over. Don't burn up. But boil. Get, Get some intensity about you, about what you're doing. And then don't do it for man. Don't do it for the pat on the back. Don't do it for the consequences that are positive that come of it. Do it, why? Because you're serving the Lord. Make him priority. Do it as a do loss. Now, here's something else Paul realized, and I think this is so good. I emphasize it, uh, some might say, too, too often, but I think it's crucial. Because we often in preaching, we tell you, do this, do this, or this is good. The Bible says do this, and that's great. We ought to, but we always have to remind ourselves that I cannot do anything outside of God. So if I'm going to grow this garden, it isn't going to be in my own strength. And I like what Paul says. Man, he combines it perfectly, doesn't he? And uh, certainly it's the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, last blanks on your outline. In case you missed it, I think they should be there. And uh, Colossians 1, 29, notice the verse. Whereunto, Paul writing to the church of Colossae, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me, and I love this word, mightily. So he says, and listen, I labor. I mean, I'm striving according to the work that God has given me, his working in me, because this is what I know. It ain't happening unless God does it. It's futile. It's in vain. If I'm trying to grow grace and trying to grow love and trying to uh, be kindly affectionate with brotherly love one to another, and I'm doing it of my own strength and my own human incapabilities, the fact is you're not going to fail. We're going to fall flat on our face. But Paul says, you do it with God's strength. And boy, in working with God working in you and through you, don't be slothful in business. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Here's how church is supposed to work. 
And uh, that's a great time to end our message. Okay, we'll pick up here in the next verse next time. There's the bell. It went off, okay? And uh, I have to answer the bell. Brother John, you'll come down the front here. And uh, it was the end of my notes, so that was good. And uh, if you have a prayer request, you give it to Brother John as he makes his way down the aisle. That would be fantastic. And uh, hand that to him or pass it inward. That would be wonderful. And uh, we'll get these prayer requests. Let me encourage you to pray. We have some already mentioned inside our prayer bulletin. We added those from last week. The ones we had mentioned on Sunday, I'd encourage you to keep praying for Tony Rodriguez Jr. And uh, continue to pray for him and about the same and from that heart attack. And, and uh, so just pray for him. They'll have a meeting on Friday and the family and things. So pray for that. The Lord just give wisdom. And certainly we'd love to see and hear of a great recovery there. And they're not sure about brain damage and other things, but do pray for uh, Tony Rodriguez Jr. I appreciate that. Continue to pray for Laura Spillers. This is Jan's mom, and uh, she uh, was able to leave the hospital per se, or the ICU she left. ICU, that's what it is. Okay. So they have a sitter, someone watching her, and now in the room and things like that. So now they're looking for a placement for her, a place that she can go to where she can be monitored better and things like that and so forth. So just continue to pray for that. Grateful she's out of the ICU. So rejoice in that. And uh, just continue to pray for healing for her and just wisdom for when she does leave the hospital of where to go, where they would place her. So appreciate that. Pray for Trisha Kester's cousin, Amy Scott. And uh, still paralyzed from that surgery. Prayed for her some time ago. So pray for Amy Scott, her cousin, still paralyzed from her surgery. Pray as, as they teach her coping skills and wisdom as they search for a new home and accommodating for her handicap. <coughs> so pray for Amy Scott and family. <coughs> Excuse me. Trisha Kester's cousin. And uh, just pray for that paralysis, obviously, after surgery, and then um, as they teach her coping skills and wisdom and things there. I should pray for the Jean Carell family and uh, nieces and nephews. They had the funeral, I believe, a day or two ago, and uh, just continue to pray there. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. I have a frog in my throat. Um, so just pray for the nieces and nephews. They, uh, as she passed away, she's home with the Lord. We praise the Lord for that. Just continue to pray for comfort for them and working in their heart. Uh, Jesse Middleton's a grandmother, uh, Helen D'Ambrosio. Is that correct? Okay. Helen D'Ambrosio, grandmother, is ill and in the hospital. So pray for Jesse's grandmother, Helen. And as she's ill and in the hospital, pray the Lord just touch and heal her, give her strength. I think that's it. Did I miss anybody that still has to turn one in or anything like that? Okay, we have some on your prayer list. I encourage you to look at those and pray as you can. That would be great. All right? Appreciate you being here tonight. We look forward to seeing you back on Sunday. Let's go to prayer. We'll split up in groups one, two, three. However, let's pray together. And then as you're done, just quietly slip out and enjoy some time of fellowship. Appreciate those who are joining us via live stream. And I trust you all have a good rest of the week. We look forward to seeing you back on Sunday. God bless.